0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Thursday (laughs) and the talk on Thursday. Um, I'd like to start with the chalice lighting, as we always do. Um, These are the words of Eric Williams. There is a light. In the beginning, there was light, infinite and expansive, flowing out from an unseen center. Throughout creation, there is light. From the steady sun, the glowing moon, the flashing meteor, the twinkling stars, the auroras dancing in the northern skies. Within each part of creation there is light, slowed down and held close by every cell and molecule, by each atom and element. Within you there is light, the same light as the source, the same radiance that is in all creatures, May this small flame be a constant reminder to you of your true nature and your kinship with all beings. Thank you. So I'd like to start with our first hymn, which is number 181 in the purple book, but that is not the tune we are singing. <laughs> and, yes. this. Um, Reverend Michelson actually was one of my first Unitarian ministers back in Boston, in Cambridge, and he wrote this tune to "Slain." So we're going to be singing it to "Slain," which you'll rec- hopefully you'll recognize as Mark Place. So. <clears throat> Take a moment, a breath, especially after a long hymn, and focus on the flame as a connection between all of us—a reminder that we're all connected to the light in one way or another. So, I'd like to tell you a story. This is for this is a truly intergenerational story, which means it can also include. Intergenerational Participation. <laughs> now, let me turn the mic on. I'll just turn the mic back on, there we go. So in this story, um, it, this is a Hopi legend about the magic corn, and this is an, adapted as told to me by Nick Page. So it, as usual, with any story involving Nick Page or me, it involves music and a little bit of a sing-along. So we're gonna have a little bit of a sing-along and I'd like to teach you a really quick song and it's called One Family so the first part goes like this the, hopefully the lyrics will be easy to remember we are all one family in this world we are all one family in this world. Just do that again. We are all one family in this world. One family in this world. So hopefully we can remember those lyrics. Okay? So as I said, this is a Hopi legend and it's a creation myth. Um, so it involves the magic corn. This is the magic corn. So the magic corn was carelessly left out on the ground. And an animal was coming by, a rabbit. Now I need someone to be the rabbit who would like to... (gasps) Perfect. Thank you. So the rabbit comes hopping along. (laughs) (laughs) I love the commitment to the role. And now finds the magic corn and picks it up. And now the rabbit has become the most important person in the world because they're holding the magic corn. So, now we're going to sing this song and you can dance around like the most important person in the world right now, shall we? You can rattle it all you want. Here we go. We are all one family in this world, one family in this world. We are all one family in this world, one family in this world. So the rabbit was hopping along and came across the squirrel. So I need a squirrel. (laughs) Squirrel? Okay, so the squirrel comes along and says, Hello, rabbit. The squirrel comes along and says, Hello, rabbit. Hello, rabbit. And the rabbit says, Hello, squirrel. Hello, squirrel. And the squirrel says, What are you holding? What are you holding? The magic corn. And then the squirrel says, (laughs) Can I hold the magic corn? Can I hold the magic corn? And the rabbit says, Sure. Sure. And now the squirrel is the most important person in the whole world! And off you go. We are all one family in this world, one family in this world. We are all a family in this world, one family in this world. So the squirrel's hopping along until they come across the snake. Anyone want to be a snake? Doesn't have to (laughs) be a kid, huh? Uh, snake. snake, would you like to be the snake? Okay. The snake slithers along and says, <coughs> So the snake says, hello, squirrel. Hello, squirrel. And the squirrel says, hello, snake. Hello, snake. And the snake says, what are you holding? Oh, what are
1: you
0: holding? And the squirrel says, I'm, I'm holding the magic corn.
1: I'm holding
0: the magic corn. What and, I ooh, do you have to say that? <laughs> And the squirrel says, sure. Sure. Of course, now snakes had hands back then, so (laughs) they can hold the magic horn. And now the snake is the most important person in the world. Here we go. We are all one family in this world, one family in this world. We are all one family in this world, one family in this world. So let's have one more animal. Let's see. So the snake is slithering along and comes across a badger. Why not a badger? So who would like to be badger? All right. So now the badger comes along and says hello snake. Hello
1: snake.
0: And the snake says hello badger. Hello badger. And then the badger says what are you holding? What
1: are you holding?
0: And the snake says? The magic
1: horn."
0: And the badger says Ooh. Can I hold the magic horn?" Can I hold the magic cord? And the snake says sure. And so now the badger is the most important person in the world. Here we go. We are all one family in this world. One family in this world. We are all a family in this world. One family in this world. world. So then the badger comes across the human. Oh, you know things are going to go take a bit of a twist here. The human comes walking along, up sees the badger. Oh, no, 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 the human's not all bad here, don't worry. It's a journey. The human goes on a journey, you'll see. So, so, the human sees the badger and says, hello, badger.
1: Hello, badger.
0: Badger says, hello, human. Hello, human. And then the human says, what are you holding? What are you holding? I'm holding the magic corn. I'm holding the magic corn. And the human says, ooh. Can I hold it? Yay! Now the human has now become the most important person in the world. Here we go. We are all a family in this world. One family in this world. We are all a family in this world. One family, family, family in this world. So the human comes across and finds the dog. I need a dog. Anyone wants to be a dog. Doesn't have to Oh, yay! Hey, come on over here and be a dog. So the dog sees the human and says, hello, human! Hello, human. And the human says, hello dog. hello, dog! The dog says, what are you holding? What are you holding? The human says, I'm holding a magic horn. I the magic corn. The dog says, Ooh. Ooh. Can I hold it? I hold it? <gasps> the human says, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I like holding the magic corn. I like holding the magic horn. I like being the most important person. I like being the most important person. And I don't think we have to share that. So all of the animals turn to the human and say, what? What? I think we can do that with a bit more righteous indignation. What? (laughs) And then the animals say to the human, but we all hold the magic corn. But we We all hold the magic corn. We share the magic corn. We share the magic corn. Because We know we are all important. Because we know we are all important. And so the human took a moment and said, hmm. Mm. Then he stroked his chin thoughtfully and said, hmm, again. Mm. And then he said, aha. Uh Aha. I have an idea. I have an idea. So gather all of the animals around. We need all the animals here, okay? This is the bit we're going to have to pretend. So, <laughs> and he takes a little piece of the magic corn. He breaks it up and gives a piece to everybody, and we all get little handfuls of magic corn. And now, what we're going to do is we're going to take that magic corn and we're going to throw it all up in the air so that everyone in the room is going to get one piece of this magic corn. Are you ready? So we're going to go three, two, one. Oh, everyone catch a piece of that magic corn! So make sure you got a piece because now all of us have a piece of that magic corn which means we are all the the most most important person person in the world. So that is our tale. We're going to sing our young people out with that same familiar song. So thank you very much for helping me tell this tale and off we go. like to invite us into a uh, meditative space. Uh, so if you'd like to settle yourselves into our, we're gonna settle into our bodies for a time of reflection. So if you can sit in any way that's comfortable for you and close your eyes, we're gonna start with the breath, breathing in slowly through the nose and exhaling through the mouth if possible. Now, on each inhale, allow your belly to expand and think the word soft as you're inhaling to that expanding belly. And as you breathe out, allow your belly to relax and think belly as you exhale. Inhale soft, exhale belly. Inhale soft, exhale belly, soft belly. Bring attention to your image of your belly, how it feels to you. Feel the softening. Feel the letting go of the hardness. <clears throat> of the holding in. The belly that resists the breath. That resists sensation. That resists life. Let the, let the breath breathe itself in in the softness. Let in mercy, patience, kindness and compassion with each inhalation. Breathe out the hardness, the resistance, the fear, Let go of hiding the belly. Let go of the distrust that's held so long in the belly. Just let your belly be soft belly, gentle. Gradually bring your awareness back to the room. And when you feel ready, open your eyes. (coughs) So thank you for that. The soft belly meditation can sometimes be a very challenging meditation. It can be quite confronting. Many of us have a fraught relationship with our bellies, and the meditation can feel quite confronting. Our belly is a vulnerable part of us, while our heart and lungs have the protection of the rib cage. All of those vital internal organs that keep us alive down here don't have that protection. They have a a softness. So, when we feel vulnerable, you notice how we tend to want to cross our hands over our bellies. That's one of the first things we go to for protection. Another person's hand on your belly, hmm, that's quite intimate. That requires a lot of trust. There are many yogic and Buddhist traditions that map out various psychic locations where cosmic energy flows in and out of our body. You might recognize this concept through chakras, chakras depending on what accent you'd like to say it with (laughs) the chakra of the belly is Svadhisthana, the sacral center Sva means self adisthana is manifestation it is the, the actual manifestation of yourself here in the belly Zen Buddhism also has a center in the belly, Hara and the Hara is the center of life It goes even further in Zen Buddhism. Um, Harada Roshi, who's a Zen master from earlier in the 20th century, was speaking about the significance of the hara, the belly, the location. And his declaration is that the center of the universe lies in the pit of all of our bellies. And you can sort of feel that, (laughs) especially when significant things happen in our lives. You feel it right in the belly. We have a whole collection of neurons. We have a second brain in our stomach that reacts and speaks to our head brain. So it's quite significant. The center of the universe, the seat of our very selfhood, the guardian of our vital organs. What a beautiful and important part of our body. Its beauty and importance is well recognized in these various traditions that practice embodiment at the core of their practice and at the core of their structure. But let's take a moment to think about some of those feelings that arose when we put it at the center of our own consciousness and meditation practice. What kinds of feelings did you feel about your belly as you focused on its being? What did you feel? You can call out any words that come to light. Shame. Shame, nervous, yeah. warm, Not quite settled, settled mm-hmm. centered, centered, too Gra- big, too big, mm-hmm. grounded. <coughs> grounded, grounded, protected, protected,
1: wobbly.
0: lovely, oh, wobbly, yeah. yes, <laughs> <laughs> lovely and wobbly. <laughs> so uh, quite a variety of feelings. So. I consider myself to be strongly feminist, I work very hard to claim my confidence and space in the world without apology, but I can say without a doubt, when I'm confronted with my belly, the first and largest emotion I feel is shame. Shame for being too round, shame for being too big, shame for being a marker of either a flawed lifestyle or a flawed body in general. it's a part of my body I wish to make as invisible as possible and this feeling is quite common there are some statistics that show that over ninety percent of people are affected by some form of feeling of body shame in their lifetime ninety percent of us at some point feel ashamed of this wonderful gift we're given it's very interesting that in our society We tend to avoid talk of the belly. We don't really talk about the belly and all all its functions. The belly is home to the bulk of our digestive system. That means the parts that take in the food convert that food to life and eliminate the waste. Elimination is an important part of life, yet we don't like to talk about that now, do we? (laughs)
1: Nope. (laughs) (laughs)
0: good point (laughs) well that's something to be said for isn't it that that young people have no problem with this if we're privileged enough it's a vital life process we get to actively participate in every day we get to eat and we get to feel that that food nourish us and we get to poo vital part of our life process (laughs) don't like to talk about that last bit but it's vital isn't it and our aversion to talking about our bellies has led to a culture of silence around our bellies, and particularly around the health of our bellies. Ooh, I've got a bit of a grumbly tummy, you know, or that food didn't really agree with me. Now, I was thinking, if, we, if I was running around with a fever of 40, 103 for American, we wouldn't go around going, hmm, feeling a bit warm. You know, that's not really how we would talk about our health that way, would we? <laughs> But when we talk about anything having to do with our belly, we're really averse to talk about its truth. It's a very awkward feeling. So why are we so reluctant to paint an honest picture of our bellies when we're talking about them? Where might this aversion and feeling of otherness within our own bodies come from? Much of the culture of the West is informed by Christian doctrine. Now, I make a distinction between doctrine and faith. Doctrine is the set of beliefs as taught by the institution of the Church. Um, um, one concept where Christian doctrine and faith intersect is the concept of the seven deadly sins. Not to be confused with mortal sins. It turns out the deadly sins and mortal sins are very different. <laughs> but in the seven deadly sins, the cardinal sins, these are the sins that speak to the very fundamentals of our nature. Can you name them? I'm curious. We'll see. Who can pride. remember what are, seven, what are they? Pride. We've got pride. pride. Yeah. Gluttony. 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 Lust. Avarice. Avarice. Sloth. 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 Pride. Envy. Envy is one of them. Gluttony. Gluttony we got. Yeah. Pride. We've got pride. pride. Lust. So we we got almost all of them. We did miss one. So we have lust, gluttony, greed, or avarice as sometimes it's called, greed, sloth, wrath, or wrath if we're American, (laughs) envy, and pride. So these are the seven deadly sins, the cardinal sins that speak to our very fundamental nature. Now, interestingly... These sins are generally aspects of the human condition that are kind of naturally a part of our lives anyway. Pride, envy, all those sort of things, we, those are natural feelings that occur. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, all that sort of thing. So if you think about, it, notice how some of these sins like lust, gluttony, and sloth, are centered around the natural states of the body. Lust and arousal is an integral part of intimacy an integral part of our experiences of our body. We all eat. We all need rest and respite. Apparently, these natural states of being, arousal, hunger, and the need for rest, become sins when they become too much. That's where it, I don't know where that line is. A lot of people have written for hundreds of years about where that line is. But too much. Too much arousal. Ooh, Slut. <laughs> Too hungry? Glutton. Are you tired and taking it easy? Slothful. So, these fundamental sins are a result of us maybe not regulating our feelings not and denying our bodies what they need. So where did this idea that we must work against our body, where did that come from? There's a lot of canon in Christian. I'm, I'm sticking with Christianity because you could go into, it would be a, a whole long other talk if you talked about every single religion's relationship with aestheticism and all that sort of stuff. But sticking with Christianity because that's the one that informs our culture the most. There's a variety of doctrine, but most people agree that a lot of this started with the Apostle Paul. And that the Pauline Gospels, um, as they say, he wrote a lot about bodies and he was a bit obsessed, it seems. <laughs> um, and he, his, his sort of seed that he planted in his own Gospels was carried throughout the ages by various Christian scholars. I'm going to focus on St. Thomas Aquinas because he had a lot to say about this as well. But the idea of this concept of the body as an obstacle to our union with God. It's a tether to the earthly world that we have to overcome. And that, that sense of relationship to our body really took hold to the very fundamental aspects of our faith. Union with the divine now came with the price of admission. That union with the divine could only happen if you have repented enough, crawled long enough on your knees, denied your body enough. That was the only way you could have any kind of union with the divine. Now, I could argue, about my very strong opinions, <laughs> that much of this is a political means of control and the way that a church can do that, but that's a, another, another talk entirely. But fundamentally, this doctrine taught that our bodies were separate from us. They were vessels, great messy meat bags that our divine nature is trapped inside and needs to to overcome. Only discipline and denial of the pleasures of the body could bring us into union with God. Now, Christianity isn't the only tradition that has that sense of discipline and aestheticism, Um, asceticism. But, um, like I said, I'm focusing on Christianity. Now many of these scholars went into great detail about just picking apart the very nature of our carnality, the nature of our body and how to overcome it. So we're going to take a moment to talk about gluttony, since we were talking about the belly. Seems rather relevant. Did you know there are actually five different categories of gluttony you can commit? Five. Well, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, there is. So, <laughs> I was pretty surprised when researching this. It's pretty much we're all doomed for failure. I'll tell you right now. Um, summa Theologica, Theologica, is St. Thomas Aquinas' culminating text. It's kind of, it's get credited with being a philosophical text that has most informed Western culture and tradition. He wrote it in the late 13th century. He goes into detail about how we can commit gluttony. So if you feel so brave enough to to admit to these, let's put our hands up if you've committed any of these deadly sins. (laughs) Laute, eating food that is too luxurious, exotic, or costly. Oh, yes. (laughs) Anyone ever been to Hawksmoor? I think that would count, so. Studiose, eating food that is excessive in quality, too daintily or elaborately prepared. Mm. Nimes, eating food that is excessive in quantity Too much (laughs) Put a bucket of popcorn in front of me (laughs) prepropere eating hastily Too soon or at inappropriate times (laughs) Ardenter, eating greedily or eagerly (laughs) Yeah, so we're all gluttons Welcome to the club, yay St. Thomas Aquinas links all of these to the concept of desire. The desire for any and desire for anything other than a union with God is a desire that must be denied and overcome. Because the only desire we should truly have as human beings is that union. And there are lots of practices to practice getting over that desire. That's a good deal of fasting practices come from the idea of overcoming desire. Now I'd like to argue, having done some fasting practice, it also can put you into a very intimate relationship with your body and hunger and feeling. So it's not necessarily always the outcome that it's about denying your body. Sometimes it's about fully embodying. But in this case, this type of practice that Thomas Aquinas was talking about really was about denial. This theological view of the world fundamentally sees our body as dual in nature, the carnal the temporary, the ephemeral, the flawed, and then our divine nature, which conveniently also contains our intellect, apparently. Um, but this is the permanent, this is the unchanging, the divine. Now I don't want to say this view doesn't have its value, <laughs> I, but I do want to talk about how I believe it's created a separation and otherness within ourselves. And I think it's created an obstacle to fully embodying our nature and reality. And it's left a legacy of real-world consequences for us today. So this will eventually be coming back to Unitarianism. I do promise it will get there. Um, so we're going to talk about some of those real-world consequences, but we're going to go a bit roundabout. I'd like for us to take a few moments to chat with somebody next to you, Um, So, like Winnie was saying in the beginning of the week, we're gonna hold a space of honesty and truth here. We won't be judgmental of what gets said. We won't be judgmental of the honesty, but let's be very honest. So if you can think of people to talk to around you, um, share some assumptions that come to mind when you encounter someone who is fat, and it may not be you. Personally, but assumptions that are living within our society. you can go that far, you don't have to um, but think about you know the word obese, overweight, people who are described that way, think about some assumptions that come around, and we're going to share this without judgment. okay, so have a chat for a few minutes. <laughs> Could go on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, what are some assumptions that arise from this? What kind of assumptions did you? Let's just call them. I'm not going to take notes on this one, but uh. disciplined, undisciplined, lazy. lazy, unhappy, unhappy, weak-willed, weak-willed,
1: unfit, unfit, unattractive,
0: unattractive, greedy, unhealthy, greedy, unhealthy.
1: self-hating,
0: self-hating, addicted
1: to fast food.
0: Oh yeah, addicted to fast food.
1: Eating too much.
0: Eating too much. Selfish. Selfish. Depressed. Depressed. Yeah. We Taking
1: up too much space. Jolly.
0: Taking up too much space. And then what did I hear? Oh yeah, the jolly fat guy. No, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and then someone else said. It's uneducated. Uneducated. Yes. It's only okay if you have a condition that causes you to be fat. Mm-hmm. Yes, you you have to be a good fatty. You have to <laughs> have to have, have achieved it. You, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. <laughs> you have pity yes, and then you then you can have pity for them. Yeah. Then you can sort of, um, yeah. So so hi there, I'm fat. <laughs> 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 kind of hard to ignore that. Um, And for much of my life, the dominant narrative that's influenced me is that I have a weight problem. That narrative came at me from all sides. And it didn't matter when I was size 12, didn't matter when I was on the basketball team, didn't matter when I was riding horses seven hours a day. I had a weight problem. And this narrative managed to trump almost every other narrative that created the strands of my life. My learning journey, my growth as a person striving for a compassionate life, my, my skills at basketball, my ability with horses, my, my professional life, my growth as a musician, as an artist, as a performer, all of these take a back seat to the first thing that most people will notice about me when they meet me, and that is my size. Now when we talk about our desire for inclusiveness and diversity within our communities, how we include fat bodies doesn't tend to come into the conversation. Much of the reasons exist in those assumptions that we laid out. Assumptions that I believe are fundamentally rooted in our duality view that our bodies are separated from our divine selves. And these assumptions actually harm fat people in our society and in our community here. Fat people are the subject of stigma and discrimination. On average, fat people earn less than their thin counterparts. This assumption of being uneducated figures into that. Teachers will hold lower expectations for their fat students than their thin counterparts. This has been researched and quantifiably measured. Fat people face an enormous amount of bias and discrimination when seeking medical care. (laughs) We've been there. Doctors will often refuse to treat patients until they've lost a certain amount of weight first. They'll often use the body mass index as a measure to determine if they're eligible for treatment, if a fat person's eligible. Despite this being a conventional measure that's used around the medical world, it's actually not fit for that purpose. It was a measurement system developed in the 1850s by a Belgian sociologist and mathematician (laughs) designed to be a statistical measure of populations. It was never ever meant to to measure an individual person's health. And that still is conventional medical wisdom that this is what defines us in in our level of health. And that's also a way that it medicalizes our shape, our condition of body. In the US alone, the weight loss industry is worth 66 billion dollars. Globally, it's estimated to be around 220 billion pounds and growing, it's growing, it's on an upward tick. That's a lot of money considering that there actually doesn't exist one scientific study that shows that diets can cause long-term weight loss in anything but a small percentage of people who undertake them. There doesn't exist one study that says diets work for the majority of people. Yet this industry is booming. We continue to desire to be thin and we contribute we continue to attribute our lack of success at being thin to being fundamentally weak or flawed. And that's what the industry wants, because they will keep you as a lifelong customer. I mean, I think we've heard in the news recently that Weight Watchers has now developed an app for children to count their calories, when the research shows that this actually is the highest predictor of eating disorders and self-harm in young people. Yet a lot of people are praising this as a choice of health. So, now I know this looks like I'm about to go banging on banging the drum for the fat people rights and all that. But actually, I'm using this as an example because it sheds light on one of our greatest challenges as a liberal faith. I'm speaking about fatness because it's the lens of my own experience through which I'm examining this Unitarian faith. Earlier this week, we heard about the masks people have to wear. Well, in addition to the mask, I wear a suit, a costume, each day, getting dressed is a bit of a dance on a pinhead. In, the most, in most of the world, I have to choose the clothes that are suitably acceptable for the occasion, suitably comfortable for myself, and suitably acceptable for a fat body to be seen in. Or, I need to make sure my skin is suitably thick for the days that I dare dress in clothes that show parts that most people want me to hide. Hello, my arms. I love these things. <laughs> <laughs> So there's an everyday reality that fat people face. We walk through society knowing that we haven't adequately paid the price of admission for full inclusion. Despite the increasing body of research that shows how much weight is controlled by a variety of factors and that willpower really doesn't figure very highly in any of them, we have committed the cardinal sin of being too much, of having too much body, of taking up too much space. This is a difficult truth I need to name, because in order for me to be fully embodied, I must embrace and embody my fatness, because that is my experience. So as I said before, I'm sharing this experience to shed light on a challenge specifically to our faith community, a challenge to embody our principles of inclusivity. When I first stepped into a Unitarian Universalist church in the U.S. all those years ago, I was deeply drawn to the first of the seven principles of UU, of the UU faith. And since then, it's what has fundamentally informed and tested all of my beliefs. That first principle says, we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. This is a principle that doesn't tell us we need to purify ourselves, in order to be worthy of the divine. It says we're already worthy. Our worth is inherent. Now, that just sounds lovely on paper. It really does. But it's not always straightforward to put into practice. Reverend Victoria Weinstein, gotta love her peace bang, she's brilliant. <laughs> she has a talent for telling it as it is. <laughs> and in this case, she does. She expressed it quite truthfully and frankly with these words. To make our first principle into a spiritual practice requires us to honestly acknowledge that we have been programmed by our society to treasure and cherish certain kinds of people over others. And to see only a select few as bearing much worth, value and dignity as ourselves have, as bearing as much worth value and dignity as we have. The rest we have been trained by many forces to regard as other, we are either afraid of that other, or we feel superior to that other. Or almost as bad, we have learned to feel a kind of privileged pity and charity towards those others. And please God, spare us from the latter, perhaps most of all. (laughs) As someone who has been the recipient of much unsolicited diet and health advice, (laughs) or words of encouragement like, you could just be so pretty if you lost some
1: weight.
0: Oh, I'm sure a lot of us have heard that. (laughs) A lot of us will have heard that. I heartily support that last sentiment of, of Reverend Weinstein's. So in order to deepen our practice of the first principle more authentically, we have to always examine our assumptions and bias and how that informs how we see others and thus how we perceive their worth. There have been many influences in Western society that inform how much a person is worth due to the growth and increasingly pervading presence of capitalism. I mean, we could go into a whole other talk about that. I'm sure we could team up on that one. Um, But the pervading capitalism, many of those assumptions lie around how useful and productive someone is, a useful member of society. What's the purpose of school? To educate children to be useful members of society, to feed the economy, because that's gonna solve all the problems. Now, capitalism isn't all bad. Innovations and all sorts of things we can thank. But for the moment, In terms of a person's worth and self-worth, capitalism is not necessarily the best influence. Then we move into other aspects of a person, someone who's intelligent, their sense of humor, they're so interesting. We have these unconscious measures of people and our value of those people is based on those unconscious metrics that are always going through our head. Then of course, how do we value people we perceive as being great instruments of evil? This has always been the Hitler question that always comes up when we talk about these things. <clears throat> or Charles Manson, or a whole host of other historical figures who have directly inflicted pain and suffering on masses of people. The Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh shows us how Buddhism can answer this question. His book, Pieces is Every Step, The Path to Mindfulness in Everyday Life, he says a challenge in this. We really have to understand the person we want to love. If our love is only a will to possess, it is not love. If we only think of ourselves, if we only think of our own needs and ignore the needs of the other person, we cannot love. We must look deeply in order to see and understand the needs, aspirations, and suffering of the person we love. This is the ground of real love. You cannot resist loving another person when you really understand him or her. I'm going to just reiterate that. You cannot resist loving another person when you fully understand him or her. Thich Nhat is telling us that when you truly understand a person, when you know every moment of their life and experience from their birth to now, you cannot help but feel love for that person. But since... We know that kind of understanding is actually impossible. We should just take it as red and love them anyway. (laughs) Take the shortcut, basically. This kind of love is another embodiment of that first principle of inherent worth and dignity of every person. So now is a good time for another song. I'd like to invite you to take a look at the um, handout. This is a Southern shape note piece from Southern Harmony. It's one of my favorite come from comes from the Appalachians. It's called What Wondrous Love Is This? <laughs> so if you rise in body or spirit as you feel, and let's sing through this. Wow. conscious bias of how I value people to be greatly challenged when I worked in a special needs school as a teacher. I worked amongst a bunch of different types of classes. I mainly specialized in working with autistic young people, but there was a time when I was working in what's called PMLD. So for that sort of education parlance for profound and multiple learning difficulties. Now this is a euphemistic way of describing Children whose disabilities are so profound that they do not function independently at any level. Um, They're generally functioning at or below the level of an infant. (coughs) These were young people whose value is not capable of being measured by our normal metrics. So this is where my challenge lied. The education they were receiving in my classroom had nothing to do with turning them into a productive member of society. Yet it was so impo- It was such important work in education, and I felt that. There were many challenges in teaching a class like this. There were six teenagers, all of them incapable of, in- of independently doing the most basic things that we take for granted. There was 16-year-old Parmit with microcephaly. Her learning target was to express liking or disliking any given activity or toy. We had spent many years getting her to a point where she could express joy in liking people and preferences for people and now we were moving on to things that weren't people. She had already mastered that joy though of interacting with people, she was just a joy. And then 13 year old Billy, he had a condition called childhood Batten's disease and had steadily been degrading, it's a form of ALS but it degrades the entirety of the brain function. And he had been degrading steadily until he was only able to make the most minimal expressions but who still clearly showed love for his mother when she came in for the daily swim, clearly showed love for his father when they were talking to each other. There are a whole host of other young people I could list. These people had long and lasting impact on my heart. But how, how do we measure that value? How do we actually measure that value? The answer is we don't. Because if we are to be true to the idea that every person has inherent worth and dignity, their value has already been measured, and it hasn't been measured by us, because it's not for us to measure. And if we can't be the ones measuring their value, how on earth can we be the ones measuring the value of anyone else? The only solution to this conundrum is to go the Buddhist route, to take as read that everyone's value and worth is inherent, whether we can see evidence to that fact or not. Because we're simply incapable of seeing deeply enough into life, into the life and experience of another person to know for sure. Now, to bring this question back to the lens of my own experience, the experience of a fat person (laughs) whose size has sometimes excluded and marginalized me. There's a growing movement within the U.S. and the U.K. that is about fat acceptance. I think there needs to be a better word in description. But I believe the first principle lies at the heart of this movement. Fat acceptance asserts that all bodies are worthy and should be treated with respect and dignity regardless of any other factors and biases that may contribute to how we value them. It challenges the concept of having to pay a price of admission in order to be fully included and embraced by society. Many people will see a fat person and make assumptions about their health and assumptions about their life choices and lifestyle. We don't even have to try. It just happens. And that's because it's been fed to us by society over and over again because somewhere somebody found out that you can make money off of these assumptions. Many times people will take those assumptions in order to inform where they should unconsciously be filed. This person is more worthy. This person isn't as worthy. This person's got a bit of work to do before they can be that worthy. Better go sign up for that diet program, then they'll be okay. The fat acceptance movement calls on us to reject those systems of valuing people and to apply the first principle in a radical and directed way because this radical application of the first principle is perhaps the most challenging aspect of living and embodying this principle of inherent worth and dignity. But this aspect of the challenge can also be the most powerful, the most liberating, and the biggest force of justice. That aspect is when we apply this first principle to ourselves. Radical self-love much like we are instructed on planes to put on our own oxygen mask first before helping the person next to us. If we want to authentically practice this first principle within the world, we have to do that from a foundation of radical self-love. Only when we have that love for ourselves can we offer that love up to others. I'll never forget being at a General Assembly in Salt Lake City with the young adults This was years and years and years ago. I could tell you stories. Um, And I made a friend there, a guy named Justin Schroeder, who coincidentally now is a senior UU minister, senior minister at the Universalist Church of Minneapolis, a huge church. He was brand new to UUism when I first met him. And the reason we struck up a conversation was because of a T-shirt he was wearing, and that was the basis of our friendship. And that T-shirt said... Start a revolution. Stop hating your body. Mm -hmm. I really felt that. And the fact that it was being worn by a thin, able-bodied, athletic, kind of cute guy. (laughs) Definitely worth a conversation with this person. (laughs) When I have moments of feeling the weight of society's pressure on me to shrink, to conform, to be more acceptable, I remember that when I value myself... It becomes an act of protest, a call for justice. It places me on a landscape of liberation. When I apply radical self-love to myself, I set in motion a chain reaction of liberation that spreads that love outward. In her book, The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love, Sonia Renee Taylor writes about the vision this radical self-love has for the world. This is what she writes. Racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, fatphobia. These are all algorithms created by the human struggle to make peace with the body. A radical self-love world is a world free from the systems of oppression that make it difficult and sometimes deadly to live in our bodies. Now imagine if we all came together in radical self-love. Imagine if we all took that love and turned it outwards, embodying the belief that every person has inherent worth and dignity, not just affirming everyone's worth and dignity, but actually embodying it. Reverend Victoria Weinstein has more to say about this. She calls us to take this to the next level. When speaking about having these kind and benevolent thoughts, the idea of affirming someone's worth and dignity, this is what she says. It would not be enough. It's not enough for this religious tradition or any other to simply have the right virtuous thoughts and feelings. Something more is asked of us, asked of us. The name for that something more is love, that enormous, demanding, divine idea that asks us not only to feel virtuous things, but to shape our actions around those feelings. The poet Rilke says that human love consists in this, that two solitudes protect and border and greet each other. Isn't that beautiful? That gives us a clear idea of what we're supposed to do. Not just to feel, we are to protect and border and greet each other. The Hindus have a beautiful word for this idea, namaste. It means the divine in me greets the divine in you. The inherent worth and dignity in me greets the inherent worth and dignity in you, whoever you are. And I think there are other versions of this that we see. The Quaker faith has its own version of inherent worth and dignity. The inner light. That of God in each of us. The belief that we are all pieces of the divine. For the Hopi, it's that kernel of the magic corn that we all carry around inside of us. If an idea of God isn't part of your view of the world, perhaps the stardust that glues our living and breathing beings to existence is the connection. And of course you really can't go into this without invoking Mary Oliver.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I guess I'm going to read that poem. (laughs) And I had planned that poem initially. (laughs) But I think Mary Oliver captures so beautifully what inherent worth and dignity actually is and how it's embodied in our lives and in the world. So this is Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, No matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. Calls you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. May we all hear that call to love and acceptance. Our final hymn is number 83. Take a breath. And let's take a breath before this one. You can rise in body or spirit. Um, the closing words. There's a song that I'm playing afterwards that I had contemplated putting into the service, but decided that it's best to sort of sing along if you know it afterwards. So I invite you to sort of sit with the closing music and join in as you hear it. So I close with the words of Don Shea Cooley. Here may you know that you are lovable and that indeed you are loved. And may you carry that love out into the world as a blessing. Blessed be.